Vladimir uh, neglected attending church for a time. It wasn't because he was an unbeliever, but because he was 16. And 16-year-old boys often don't find long, boring church services all that interesting. One day he overheard his father asking the parish priest what he should do about it. Now, I'm sure the parish priest wanted all the boys in the village to come to his church. He overheard the priest answer his father uh, with this answer. He said to his father, this is what you should do about it. Beat him. Beat him and beat him and beat him. And at that, Vladimir Lenin tore the cross from his neck, took a vow, and began to beat the church. <laughs> and now hundreds of millions lie dead. But where was that battle fought? In universities, between scholars? On battlefields between nations and empires? Or in the heart of a 16-year-old boy who desperately needed to believe that God is love? About eight, 80 years ago, a South African boy, a little boy, was walking down a sidewalk next to his mom holding their hand. And a man was coming toward them down the sidewalk in the other direction. He was white, and they were black. And Desmond knew the drill at this point. He had seen it a, a hundred times. But on this day, the man, well, he stepped aside, and he smiled, and he tipped his hat as if to say, you go first, and I'll follow. Desmond then looked up at his mom and said, Mom, why was that man so nice to you? Desmond, he's a minister of the gospel. People like that are kind to everyone. And it was at that point, according to Archbishop Desmond Tutu, it was then and there that he decided, that's what I want to be when I grow up, a minister of the gospel. About 50 years ago, Desmond Tutu uh, sat at my table drank from my cup in Littleton, Colorado. I barely remember it. My dad invited him over for dinner because he was speaking at something for the Presbytery in, in town. My mom had to remind me, she said, Peter, it was the day the winter dog had puppies. Remember, Ladybug had puppies and the puppies died. I, I don't remember a Nobel Prize winning archbishop eating dinner at my house, but I do think I vaguely remember this African guy who was nice, had something to do with Jesus, and felt sorry for us because the puppies died. So who changes the world? Hitler? Stalin? Vladimir Lenin? Donald Trump? Joe Biden? Or some unknown man who, without thinking, stepped aside, smiled, and tipped his hat at a poor black woman and her little boy in South Africa 80 years ago. Let's pray. Father, would you send your word? Would you uh, send your word to overturn our hearts? to be implanted within us, within the broken dirt and 
muck of our lives. Would you help us to preach? It's even in his name, in Jesus' name, that we can ask this. Amen. Well, you know, last time, sermon, well, sermon before last, two, two sermons ago, uh, we talked about the fact that arguing over politicians is like arguing over the babysitter. It, it matters, but it doesn't matter in the way that we're constantly tempted to think that it matters. Last week, we talked about Jonah, the partisan prophet who went to hell and then preached the word. He was partisan toward Israel and against uh, Assyria and with good reason, at, at least according to our uh, reason. Jonah uh, was a partisan prophet from Israel, and this is a wall panel that comes from Assyria in Nineveh, the palace of Sennacherib. It's a depiction of Assyrians skinning Jews alive. So Jonah was partisan. Uh, he was engaged in partisan politics. I suppose all politics in this world is at least a bit partisan. And this is how it works, in case you, you don't know, okay? So this is how you do it. Step number one, you define your polis. Now, that's simply Greek for, for city. So if you think about it, polis is the perfect last name for a politician, right? Your polis could be your city, your state, your country, maybe even your race, like Aryan race or Jewish race. It could be your class, like proletariat or bourgeoisie. It could be your political party, like Republican or Democrat. It's your group, step number one. Step number, number two, you make it partisan by pitting it against, against an, another group and then trying to gain power over that other group. You define your group as best or first, and you try to take power from the other group by making it last or, or worst. You exalt your group by humbling the other group. And of course, you'll want to use your knowledge of good and evil to do this. That is, to justify your group and accuse the other group. That's the way. So you'll be tempted to not only use your knowledge of the truth, but actually kind of like, you know, twist the truth in order to make a way, to make your way. And you'll be tempted to use life, like voters and soldiers, in order to get your way. If your polis is first, well then truth and life can't be first, right? If your polis is, is first, well, well, then it's a good chance you're going to make something else last. If we actually believe America first, aren't we making something else last? And now, okay, benefit of the doubt here. Maybe by that we mean America first at something, right? Okay, so first at what? Make America first at what? It's obvious that Democrats want to make Democrats first and Republicans last. And it's obvious that Republicans want to make Republicans first and Democrats last. 
If you're thoroughly partisan, you'll try to win at all cost. You'll use truth and life thinking that's the way, and then you'll find yourself lost. Why? Well, you'll be lost because you just crucified the truth and the life to serve your polis. That will leave you dead, lost, and eventually alone because love isn't beating your neighbor. Love is serving your neighbor. (laughs) That's the way. And so I think this may be the saddest commentary on the state of the American psyche right now. The fact that we're all utterly stressed about two seats in the Senate, which is comprised of a hundred seats, why are we stressed? We're stressed about whether there will be one more vote for the Democrats or one more vote for the Republicans because, you see, we all assume that the senators will not seriously consider other people's lives, listen to truths, and then make complicated, thoughtful decisions about the way. We assume that they'll just vote for the blue donkey or the red elephant. And that is, like, profoundly tragic. Tragic because it means that we make decisions like we root for football teams. And it means that our team, our polis, really has no substance, no, no meaning. It's tragic because there are, well, there are good liberal arguments. And there are good conservative arguments. And we need to hear all those arguments in order to make good decisions about finding the way. There are times when it makes sense to be cautious, conservative, and wear a mask, for instance. If you don't, people might get sick and die. And there are times when it makes sense to take chances, be liberal, and not practice social distancing. Why? Because too much social distancing, there'll be no economy. There'll be no no food. There'll be no babies. Too much social distancing. And you'll notice that my example is confusing because, well, liberals are acting rather conservative regarding this issue. (laughs) And conservatives are acting rather liberal regarding this issue. And liberal and conservative don't really mean much anymore except red team and blue team. I think that's because we politicized everything in America, including truth. And without truth, there can be no meaning. You know, left and right really have no meaning in and of themselves. Michael Hannon put a great little article in the E! News a few weeks ago about how left and right comes from this weird incident during the, during the French Revolution with the tennis court, but left and right really have no meaning in and of themselves. Think about it. If you always go left, I go left, I go left, I go, I go left, I go left. Or if you always go right, I go right, I go right, I go right. Where are you going? Nowhere! You're just getting dizzy. And you will not find the way. If, if, you know, when we find the way, if we get somewhere, we, we go left sometimes, we go right sometimes, and if you listen to correction from both sides, you might even go straight, right to your destination. Well, anyway, people on the left are all worried about the right, and with good reason. We could spiral to the right and end up like the fascists in Nazi Germany. And people on the right are worried about the left, and they have good reasons because we could always go left and end up like the communists under Stalin. 
It's important to remember that every political entity will attempt to use the way, the truth, and the life, that is the word of love, to exalt itself and humiliate its neighbor. They all want God on their team, as long as he's blue or red, as long as he's dead. You can't argue. Both Hitler and Stalin, and this is all fascinating history, but both of them eventually supported, not only supported, but funded the institutional church, as long as it supported their party. And in both instances, the institutional church gained power while it crucified the truth, renounced its life, and lost its way. Collaboration with power, wrote Jacques Ellul, is always ruinous for the church. Well, partisan politics may have its, its place. It's how the children attempt to pick their own babysitter. It has its place. If we remember what it, what it is. But if partisan politics becomes partisan theology, in other words, if we begin to say, well, dad loves some, but dad doesn't love others, or dad is on our team, but not on our group. Dad loves our group, but he doesn't love your groups. Well, I suspect that we'll just end up in hell. Like Jonah. And now if you're, you're paying attention, you, you may be thinking, well, gosh, Peter, but um, like, think about this. Isn't God partisan? Isn't he partial to some and not others? Does, doesn't he pick some and reject others? I mean, even if he picks those that pick him and rejects those that reject him, he's still picking and, and rejecting. And talk about, talk about partisan politics. <laughs> Read your Bible. Didn't God pick Israel to be first? Yeah. And that's what makes the story of Jonah so fa fascinating. Not, not the fish. The fish really, I mean, what, God can do what he wants with fish. So I hope you don't get hung up on that. But not, that's not what's really fascinating. What's fascinating is the fascinating, terrible, entirely wonderful judgment of God that is the word of God. By way of review, the walking, talking word of God with a face came to Jonah. Jonah, who was the prophet of Israel and representation of Israel, and, and that word, that word said to, to walking, talking word said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, for their evil has come before my face. Go to Nineveh and preach. And what will Jonah preach? Well, the word of God, of course. The word that is a hammer and a fire, according to Scripture, and will judge the Assyrians. You would think that Jonah would love to, to preach the word, right? You, you would think that he'd love to announce, we're first, you're last, and here's a little holy fire to prove it. Well, Jonah hears the word, and perhaps he also saw his face. Last time we conjectured that it must have looked something like this, the face of the word, body broken, bloodshed. Jonah sees that God is judge, and the judgment is grace.
He hears the word and then he runs from the face of that word. Deuteronomy 28, that's a sin punishable by death. Verse 26, your dead body will be fed to the beasts. Food for the beasts. Remember, remember that God once said to Moses, very important place, he said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's his choice. What if that's the Ninevites? What if that's the people that you hate? He said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have mercy and no one can see my face and live. <sighs> well, Jonah must have seen the face because he fled from the face. He went down to Joppa and he took a ship bound for the open sea. When, when the sea uh, would not cease its raging, remember he's cast uh, into the abyss and is swallowed by a giant fish. A Nuna that looks like Nina of the Ninevites, he descended into the belly of Sheol, the belly of the beast, he descended into death. And that's ironic. The measure Jonah would give is the measure Jonah gets. The judgment that Jonah would pronounce is the judgment that Jonah receives. It's ironic, he's all about old Israel in the Revelation, I think that's the imitation Christ, the false Christ, the beast from the land, and he's swallowed by the beast from the sea and ends up in Sheol. You know, some have said that I don't believe in hell and I think I preach about hell more than any pastor that I know. I want to say, but I don't know exactly how to say, not only do I believe in hell, I'm trying to say that I think you may be going there. Because you seem to be also, also very happy with the fact that those people that you don't like might be going there. And if you go, you can't stay forever without end because Jesus is the end, but as long as you hate the end, you'll hide in hell. You'll hide in the belly of space and the time. Jesus is the end. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the judgment of the Lord. Salvation does not belong to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeshua, God is salvation. And if you don't like it, you can go to hell. So pay attention. In the book of Acts, where the gospel goes to the nations, hell is not even mentioned. Not Hades, not Gehenna. But in the Gospels, the four Gospels, story of Jesus, Jesus issues warnings about hell over and over and over again. To whom? To Israel. Matthew 18, Jesus admires the faith of a Roman centurion uh, and then says this, Truly I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's Israel, will be thrown into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom. That's Israel. That's Jonah. Well, that could be us. Partisan prophets love to point out that the U.S. has a special relationship to Israel. The U.S. spells us, but U.S., that the U.S. has a special relationship to Israel, the modern nation-state of Israel. Whether that Israel is the same as the true Israel is a topic of heated debate, but just about every theologian worth their salt will argue that we've all been grafted into Israel and that the 12 disciples, well, they're the start of a new Israel. The church, the church is Israel. So if we're Israel, 
We ought to listen to the warnings given to Israel. If the U.S. is exceptional, as Israel is exceptional, then we better pay exceptional attention to the story of Jonah. We better preach the word to the the nation so we don't end up like Jonah. Jonah goes to hell. And Solomon writes, there is no work, no thought, no knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. No thought, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol. In other words, no one believes in hell. That's what makes it hell. Hell is not believing the word of love, and our God is love. No one prays to God in hell. But on the third day in hell, there's a miracle. Jonah 2, verse 2, King James Version. Out of the belly of hell I cried, and thou heardest my voice, says Jonah. Salvation, Yahshua, belongs to the Lord. The Lord is salvation, Yeshua. Jonah speaks the word, for the word had descended into hell with Jonah. Jonah speaks the word, and the beast cannot stomach the word. You know, if you eat something that's not dead, but is alive, you can't stomach it, right? Well, anyway, Jonah speaks the word, and the beast cannot stomach the word. Jonah speaks the word, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Jonah dies with the word, and Jonah rises with the word. The the beast literally vomits Jonah and the word up onto the dry land. This is like the creation story. Well, and that's where we pick up this story. Chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Okay, the second time, saying, rise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. There's that number again, three. Jonah began to to go into the city, going a day's journey, and and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Hafak, overturned, changed, repented. So, So get the picture. Jonah didn't trust the word of God and was three days in the belly of Nina. Now Jonah spends three days in Nineveh preaching the word. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They trusted the word. They trusted the word, and it overturned their city, their polis, the word. They believe the word. Why? Why? Now, this is a fascinating question, especially in light of the rest of the story, so we're going to return to it in, a, in just a few minutes, but they believe God. Verse 6, the king of Nineveh gets up off his throne, takes off his robe, puts on sackcloth, and he repents, and then he issues a decree that everybody is supposed to put on sackcloth and repent, including the animals. I mean, it's really kind of funny, and they all repent. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the literally evil that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. He was kindled. He was hot. Kara, the the fact that God wouldn't do evil was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and it made him hot. The light of God's word made him burn. Jonah hates the grace of God, and it burns him. And it's at this point that Jonah reveals that this is why he fled in the first place. God is gracious. God, I knew it. You're gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and you, you relent from evil. 
Jonah ran from the word of love, trying to hide in the depths of the sea. You see, that's outer darkness. That's Hades. That's hell. And now he's burned by the word of love, and that's Gehenna. That's literally the edge of God's polis, the edge of his city, his judgment of eternal fire, his word. Verse 4, and the Lord said, Jonah, do you do well? Do you do good to be angry? Is doing good not good to you? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city. Just imagine, it must have been like a party in the city. That's what people do when they experience grace. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, just like Adam and Eve went out to the east of Eden. Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth, a sukkah, just like the booths that the Jews made in the wilderness on their journey. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a vine or a plant and made it come up over Jonah, over the booth made of twigs, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from, literally, his evil. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm. God appointed the worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. And ironically, it appears as if Jonah's already dead. So entering the city would be the death of death which is life. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? Have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And that's where the book ends. With Jonah weeping and gnashing his teeth in outer darkness, just outside a city full of happy people. It ends just where the story of the prodigal son ends. With the older brother weeping and gnashing his teeth in outer darkness, while his father, who is with him, begs him to come into the party with his little brother. It ends just where the parable of the vineyard ends, with all the early workers having judged themselves out of the kingdom because they resent the mercy of the master on those who came late and are now in the kingdom having a party. It ends just where the Bible ends, where the revelation ends, with those who love falsehood weeping and gnashing their teeth in outer darkness, uh, in the darkness of this age, just outside a city, an eternal city, filled with every creature in heaven and earth and under the sea and all that is within them, a city into which the kings of the earth bring their glory, a city in which everyone is happy, death is no more, and all things are new, a city whose gates are always open by day, and it's never night there. The book ends where Peter Hyatt is. I believe, but I need help with my unbelief. I've been baptized, died with Christ, risen with Christ. I've experienced grace, but I struggle to be gracious. 
I know the good, but I struggle to be the good. I'm partial to myself. And I'm partisan on behalf of my group. And you see, God's not partisan. (laughs) He's no respecter of persons. The book ends where I end and begin, at the edge of time and eternity, at the judgment of God, at the edge of a garden just east of Eden, where the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, it cuts to the division of my soul and my spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of my heart. And now check out this last line, because it gets lost in translation, but I think translated literally, it should just take your breath away. This is what God says to Jonah. Should not I pity Nineveh, Jonah, that great city in which there are more than 12 times 1,012? That's a pretty significant number for, for, for Israel, right? And a thousand, that's the biggest denomination in Scripture. Kilio in Greek, mile, as in millennium in Latin. Jonah, should not I, should I not have compassion on more than 12,000 Adam? Common singular noun. 12,000 Adam who have not known their right hand from their left, let alone good from evil, and also all the animals? Wow! Imagine if we, like, really believed the Bible. Right here, we're, like, east of Eden, and the Word of God is talking to Israel about Adam. As if Adam has been broken into 12,000 pieces because Adam did not know good from evil, so did not trust the Word of God, who is good. We're back here. And now I know that this is more than we can take in in this moment, and perhaps in all of space and time, but for now just notice that God refers to all of the Ninevites as Adam. It's Hebrew convention to use the word Adam in this way, and so scholars will point that out. But but maybe it's important to ask, is it Hebrew convention by accident? Or is it Hebrew convention for a reason, maybe even the reason, like the Logos. You know, when we studied Ecclesiastes a few years ago, we saw it over and over again. Solomon uses the word, even with the article, Ha-Adam, the Adam, he uses it for a reason. And, and when we get to the New Testament, St. Paul, writing in Greek, reverts to the Hebrew in critical situations as if to say, listen, I'm using this for a reason. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15 are the two prime examples. This is 15, or 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living nephesh, a living soul. The last eschatos Adam became a life-giving pneuma, life-giving spirit, life-giving breath, life-giving word. So what is the word of the Lord to Jonah? Isn't it something like this? Jonah, the Ninevites are Adam. You are Adam. I am Adam, the eschatos Adam, the last Adam, the son of Adam, the son of man, who gives himself up for all that all might give themselves up for me, for we are one, just as I am. And the Father are one. 
We are truly one, eternally one, but as long as you desire hell, I will remain in hell with you. It was me that came to you and asked you to preach. It was me that caused the storm. It was me that constrained Nina the beast to gulp you down. It was me that descended into the belly of beasts with you. It was me that called to our Abba from uh, the depths of hell as we suffered together. It was me that led you here, for it's me that suffers in the belly of every Ninevite. It's me that suffers in the womb of Adam. I'm the son of Adam, the son of man. It's me that upholds all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and I do it all that you might learn love which is eternal life. I came to die with you in time that you might live life in me for all eternity. Jonah, the kingdom of God is not partisan. It is an infinite number of things, and yet they're all bound together as one. By me, the word of God, the rhythm of the dance, the logic of love, the first or last. And the last are, are first. The exalted are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. All win because all choose to lose, and everyone is happy. That's the logic of love. That's grace. It's not that some are bad and need to be destroyed, and others are good and need to be rewarded. You all needed to learn the difference between good and evil, which is the difference between I am and I am not between something and nothing. You needed to know what is and what is not so you could choose to be who you are and who we are in freedom and constant joy. It's not that some of you chose evil and some of you chose good. It's that all of you chose evil in order that all of you could see the good who constantly chooses you. I am the good. I am the life, and you are my body. It's by dying with me and rising with me, Jonah, that you join the dance. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the logic of love. I am the word of I am. Everything that's anything is my choice. <laughs> so how could I be partisan? Jonah, I choose you to help me invite others to the dance. <laughs> and to teach you to dance in the process. Israel, I chose you to be first at choosing to be last. <laughs> now, do you understand? That's the first step into the great dance. You must lose your life to find it. I mean, this is right there from the start. Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. God just speaks to this wandering Aramean or however it's <laughs> this. He just speaks to one of the sons of Adam named Abraham. He says this, I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who, who curses you I, I will curse. And in you, all the families, all the nations, that's every polis, will be blessed. So it will involve blessing and cursing and cursing and blessing, exalting and humbling and humbling and exalting, but in this way and through his chosen people, God will call everyone to the dance. He is the dance, and we are his image, the image of love. Well, 
If you say your Bible, you know that Israel did not really respond to their call. That's kind of the huge, shocking turning point in Scripture. Israel did not respond to their call and descended into the abyss, but just like Jonah, they will be saved. And much of the institutional church has not responded to the call, and I suspect may have to descend into the abyss, but just like Jonah, we will be saved when we stop trusting ourselves for salvation. We're saved like Jonah by, get this, the evangelist is saved by preaching the word. Yeshua, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah preached the word. You may have wondered, well, what exactly did Jonah say? I mean, everybody repented. That's kind of shocking. I mean, what exactly did Jonah say? And all we know is that he said 40 days and you'll be overturned, and, and they were, but we really don't know exactly what Jonah said. And maybe it doesn't matter. Listen to Jesus. As Jonah became a sign, he became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the kerygma, the proclamation of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here, a sign that is a proclamation. I suspect the proclamation of Jonah wasn't what he said. I mean, I'm sure Nineveh was just full of all kinds of prophets saying all sorts of stuff. It wasn't what he said, but who he was. He was the sign. He was the substance of grace. He'd been lost, but now he was found. He'd been blind, but now he was beginning to see. He had died, and he deserved to die, and he chose to die. But he had been raised because God chose him to live and be a testimony. Everything is grace. Like me, he struggled to believe the gospel, and yet he was the gospel. So he didn't have to say it with his lips because he was it with his being. Jonah was the poster boy for amazing grace. I doubt that he could explain the way, truth, and the life. He was more like the presence or the face of the way, the truth, and the life. And in earthen, stubborn, grumpy vessel, just like a seed of faith in a, a jar of clay, and that was enough for a time. You know, Jonah was saved for a time, kind of. And Nineveh was saved for a time, kind of. Jonah would still die, and in a generation, Nineveh and the Assyrians would forget about the word of God and utterly obliterate Israel. Jonah was a sign pointing to something greater. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter blurted out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God? He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, now, that confuses commentators. They argue about this because in the Gospel of John, we learned that Peter's dad was named John. Why would he be called Jonah? But that's what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's pretty amazing. But then Jesus goes right on to say, get behind me, Satan. So Peter wasn't perfect. 
Peter would even deny Jesus, for as Jesus was revealed, Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. But after Peter dies with Jesus, Peter, well, he rises with Jesus, and filled with his spirit, he's called to preach like Jonah. Acts chapter 10, check this out. He's praying in Joppa. That's where Jonah received, uh, uh, or, or he got, he, that's where he went to get the boat for the open sea. I, we don't know exactly where he received the call, but, but had something to do with Joppa. Uh, Peter's in Joppa, and like Jonah, he receives the call, but not to go to Nineveh, but to go someplace far, far, far worse, the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion in the city of Caesar. Ia, Caesarea. It was a, a, a Roman centurion that crucified Jesus, his best friend. And he did it all in the name of Caesar. The Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. Peter receives the call, but unlike Jonah, Peter answers the call. He goes to Caesarea, listens to Cornelius. In other words, he drinks from his cup. He sits at his table. He even gets a vision to tell him that he has to do that. Then he preaches saying, truly, I understand God shows no partiality, and, and then he tells them about Jesus. He is the testimony of Jesus. <laughs> he is the spirit of prophecy in a jar of clay. And that's how Jesus conquered the empire of Rome. Whew. That's one heck of a polis. And that's why that pastor tipped his hat and stepped off the sidewalk to make a way for a black lady and her little boy in South Africa 80 years ago. And that's why apartheid is now history and why anything good that's ever happened actually did happen. That's why Desmond Tutu was nice and why I wanted to become a pastor like my dad and why you're listening to me right now. Not because someone used knowledge of the way, the truth, and the life to argue you into the kingdom, but because someone was the face of the way, the truth, and the life, the presence of the way, the truth, and the life, and they loved you into the kingdom. Not because someone used knowledge of the good to pass legislation that you had to be good, but because someone who was the incarnation of the good, someone was the incarnation of the good in a world that is not good, and, well, you fell in love with the good, like a light shining in a dark place. And, well, only later did you ask for an explanation. You know, if we really fell in love with the word of love, who is our father, we wouldn't even need a babysitter. We wouldn't need legislation or judiciaries or executives to execute the law. We would all gladly lose and everyone would win. We would all dance. It would be free market communism. <laughs> That's the ultimate party. And even if, even if only some of us begin to dance and party, well, we could at least have a decent conversation about politics, right? So if you voted for Trump, God's calling you to go to the house of someone that voted for, for Joe Biden and sit at their table, drink from their cup, and then be the testimony of Jesus. That's how God chooses to change the world. 
And if you voted for Biden, God's calling you to go to the house of someone that voted for Trump, drink from their cup, sit at their table, and be the testimony of Jesus, because your last name isn't Hyatt or Smith or Jones, it's Barjona. That's how the kingdom comes. I believe God's calling you, and by you, I mean the sanctuary. Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, I believe he's calling you to testify for your theology, your theologos, your God word is not partisan. And so the word on your tongue can deliver folks from hell and even politics. Because the walking, talking word with a face took bread and broke it. The eschatos Adam took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the, the covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And we know who was sitting at that table when he said that. And so we invite you. He calls you to come to his table. And because of the coronavirus, we have to use these funky little cups, you know. But you take them back to your seat and sit there and open them up. And you take out a piece of bread and, and you can, you know, probably don't, you can dip it or drink it, whatever. But, but you take it and, and you, take, you take a piece of the broken body of the eschatos Adam. Well, think about that. That's like one man that has been broken into 12,000 pieces. You take it and you place it in the abyss. Let it descend into the abyss and give birth to the way, the truth, and the life. Believe the gospel and you become the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, Lord Jesus, we confess that you're the first. You're the firstborn of all creation. You're the chosen one who chose to make himself last and least and to descend into all of us to teach us the dance. You're the first step, the last step, really the only step in the dance. You're the manifestation of love, and we are your body. <laughs> I, I really could not think of something better, God. So um, I pray you'd help us to believe it. That you are never, you are, you are never. <laughs> well, there's no way we're going to arrive and the kingdom be disappointed with your like goodness. You're always better than we thought. Your your love, um, Jesus, it's it's deeper than we know, and your spirit is everywhere, working the wonders of mercy. So we worship you, our King, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, Amen.